All right, this is the PFTPM podcast, Monday, August 13, 2018. And before I get to Colts GM Chris Ballard, our guest today, I'm going to get right to it. I have promised Madden codes, and I have four left. Here's a PS4 Madden code for you right now, right out of the gates. I'm not screwing around. NPB9KTN59AGA. That's a PS4 free copy of Madden 19. All right, so let's get right to it. Chris Ballard in his second year as general manager of the Indianapolis Colts, and he joins me now. Chris, how are you, pal? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I just read off the Madden codes. Are you now or have you ever been a Madden guy? Well, I, I have not personally, but my, my, my sons are. <laughs> so I'll make sure they listen to the podcast. Do they try to get you to play? Do they, like, let you play? play and beat the hell out of you or do you just stay away from it altogether well so when i anytime i try to put myself into the game one of them gets mad at me um either for giving giving a play or telling them to do something that works or telling them to do something that completely gets botched and fails and they lose the game <laughs> and so it's a no it's become a no-win proposition for me to get involved has there ever been an issue in any of the teams you've been with where you have guys on the team, players who spend too much of their time, whether it's Madden or any of the other video games, to the point where it affects their ability to show up on time, be ready to go, uh, affects them in any negative way in connection with their work? Well, look, I've been fortunate to work for, you know, Lovey, Lovey had a, he was, he was pretty demanding on time and, and being on time and, and you weren't going to be there if you didn't. And then Coach Reed was unbelievable in terms of his, you know, the discipline that he required. So the type of players that we brought in the building, it, that never affected them because they knew they knew what the deal was. They knew that, you know, they needed to be where they needed to be on time. And, and it's been fun watching Frank because Frank's got a very similar mindset. How do you glean that when you're looking at a guy who may or may not be ready to become a head coach? And obviously you've made your first hire earlier this year in Frank Reich. But how do you know that a guy is going to be able to impose his will on a room full of men who may have other plans for what they're going to do with their time? I'm going to tell you now, Mike, that's a, that's a great question. And, and one that I've definitely thought about a lot um, before the hire. You know, I think one of the number one things for a head coach is – his presence um, and his ability to stand in front of the room and, you know, get respect from the players um, through his presence and through the words that they talk. And Frank, you know, the more research you, d you did on Frank, both as a player in the locker room, as an assistant coach, as a coordinator, um, the one thing that, that was really came across strong was, was presence. And I'll never forget sitting in the room, we were interviewing him and about 30 minutes in, I just oh, I was blown away in terms of, you know, his command of what he believed in, you know, at the end of the day, that's, I mean, what do you believe in? What is, what do you, what are your convictions are you willing to stand for? Um, and Frank had those and look, the team teams, it, as long as you're honest with players and you, and you have great presence, but you got to be honest with them every day. And, and Frank's out. I mean, he's got that outstanding quality. And I, and I think when you look back, you know, he, he played in the league 14 years. He understands the locker room. Um, that's, a, that's been a very valuable asset for him uh, in a, being a first-time head coach. 
And, you know, there are a lot of successful coaches that never played at the NFL level. Frank Reich was never a consistent week-in and week-out starter, but he had enough moments, and he was around long enough that there's value there. How much do you see that translate in him as he deals with players versus guys that never played in the NFL but still become successful head coaches? You know, I don't – and you're right. I mean, look, I mean, it, it, I don't think it matters whether you play in the league or not. I don't – I don't. I mean, you just got to look around the league and see all the successful coaches that um, that are that are you know some of the greatest in the history of the game never played in the NFL. Um, but I do think it's an advantage for a guy that has played and does have with Frank because he understands what they go through on a daily basis. I mean, he understands how hard training camp is. He understands, especially with the quarterback position, he understands what they're going through when they struggle, when they have success. He can see the world through their eyes. That's That's been really good for the quarterbacks, you know, on our team is because Frank's able to relate with them uh, what they're going through on a daily basis. I get the impression that Doug Peterson in Philadelphia put a high degree of value on delegation to men like Frank Reich when he was the offensive coordinator there. What kind of delegation have you seen so far from Frank Reich to the members of the staff that he hired? Well, I think it's been really good, and, and I think he's hired a you know a really good staff. We're young, um, you know. Nick Cerrone's his his offensive coordinator came from San Diego, but they had worked together before. Um, and you know, we hired a couple college coaches. Um, our off huge offensive line coach have been in the league some. And look, Frank's big on you know he's he's big on trust and dele- and expecting you when he delegates something for you to do to do it at a you know to do it at a high level. And I know on offense, he's done a great job of delegating to each one of our coaches what they're responsible for each week in terms of game plan, uh, you know, dealing with the players, all the aspects that go into getting to Sunday, he, he delegates it out. And I think he's figured it out because he's also going to call plays, which is not, you know, we, me and him talked a long time about that. That's, that's not easy. Uh, to be head coach and, you know, to also call plays. But because of the way he delegates, I think that allows him to do it. Did you try to talk him out of calling plays? No, not at all. Because um, I know he's he's got a great mind for the game and for offense. Um, my thing was, I said, look, just make sure, because you're, now you're looking at not only the offense, but you're looking at the offense and defense. He's got a great plan in place. Uh, to help him with the way he's delegating, and then the the familiarity between him and Nick, both being in San Diego together, really helps him out. I get the impression that there are some coaches around the NFL, and I'm not going to name names. You can if you want, but I think that some of them maybe don't trust their staffs enough to delegate, that they don't think anyone else can do it the way they do it, and they end up overworking and not really taking advantage of the talent they have and not developing those guys the way that maybe they could be developed. You know, I guess the way, I guess because I've, I've been around Lovey, who did a great job of delegating, and he was the head coach. Um, Andy Reid, who with his staff put a lot of trust, um, especially in, you know, if you look, Everywhere Andy's been, he's hired an experienced defensive coordinator with him. Um, and then he's hired people within his system who knew the offense. So he was able to delegate and also be the head coach. I mean, I don't think you can ever lose perspective on that the head coach has to be able to manage the entire team and, and his staff. And that 
I mean, that that's a that's not an easy job to do. And, you know, it takes a it takes a, a special type of person to be they got to be highly intelligent. They got to be honest. They got to be able to speak the truth and they got to be consistent and they have to do it every day. And I always laugh because Coach Reed, you know, he's remember what he used to talk to me about, you know, when, you know, when you're looking at head coaches, you go, hey, look, Chris, he goes, no matter how good it is or how bad it is. You got to be the same guy every day. He goes, and and when it gets hard, and there's going to be points when it gets hard, but that head coach has got people. People got to see a position of strength and a man of strength in that position that he shows up every day and is the same guy every day. It was a hard year last year across the board for the Colts with the absence of quarterback Andrew Luck. Last Thursday night, you're in Seattle for the preseason opener, and I envision a wheel of emotions. You've got excitement, hope, dread, panic, fear. Which one were you feeling the most when you saw Andrew Luck walk out on the field to play for the first time in 585 days? <laughs> I was uh, happy for the kid. Um, I was excited for Andrew um, just to watch since I walked in the, you know, the building at the end of, you know, last January, end of January, um, 2017 to where we are now, um, the work that he put in, um, you know, the, you know, he, he struggled to get back and it just took time and to watch his, watch him mature, grow and to get to that moment. He was in the locker room before the game. He was, he was like a little kid. Um, getting ready for Christmas. I mean, he was excited, and you know, I was excited for him. And it was a, uh, it was a, it, for a first preseason game. I don't, you're right. I did have nerves. I had nerves for for him. Um, but saying that, I also had a lot of confidence because I've been watching him through this entire process of where where he's going. And to be honest with you, I. I don't. I don't think we've seen the best of Andrew Luck. I really don't. I think we're about to, um, because I think this. I don't ever want to say an injury is a good thing, but to see the growth in him over this over this last year and a half has been has been really fun to watch. Any moments when your heart maybe skips a beat during that game. He took a couple of hits and look, that's part of it, but you have the red Jersey off. You're wearing the regular regulation Jersey. You can be hit like anyone else. Do you get nervous when you see him take that contact? No, because it's football and he knows that. And I don't think he was nervous about it. Matter of fact, I think he initiated one of them um, on, the one, <laughs> on the one, on the one that he scrambled up the middle uh, you know, I, I think he kind of initiated that because he wanted. To, I think he wanted to get dirty um, and feel. And, and uh, but no, there, there was never. It's football. And look, if you if you worry about getting injured during practice or during games, if you're if that's your main concern, then you know you're beaten already. I mean, you you got no shot. But see, I remember Chris back when he was a rookie, and he had that tendency to go try to make a tackle after a turnover it was a combination of hey I'm a football player and I'm pissed off that the other team has the ball and he's a big strong guy and they tried to reel him in from making those plays how do you strike that balance especially when he is big and he looks physically capable of delivering the pounding how do you get him to stay on the right side of that so he doesn't start racking up hits because sooner or later if you get hit enough times something's going to bust no, that's a good, that's a good question. That's a good thought. 
Um, and you know, you don't want to you don't want to strip him of his instincts and how he plays the game, but you want to play the game smart and live to play another down. And when you don't need to take an unnecessary shot, don't take an unnecessary shot. You're going to get hit enough in a in a professional football game. That's the nature of it. But when you don't have to take um, those unnecessary hits, don't take the unnecessary hits. I think he understands that. I think he. I think we, you're going to see a lot of growth. And I and I, you know, for me to sit here and say, well, when is it going to happen? I, I don't know. Um, but I do believe, you know, over the next over this season and the upcoming seasons, you're going to see Andrew uh, really expand and and uh, do some pretty special things. Have you gone back and watched old game film to try to discern how he got to the point where he had a shoulder injury that put him on the shelf for a full year? Was it poor blocking? Was it bad instincts on his part? Was it him not living to play another down and recklessly embracing contact or some combination of the three? Well, you know, when he got hurt in in Tennessee, I mean, it was a breakdown and it was a pure breakdown in, in protection at the time. Um, and then over time, I think it was a combination of uh, of a few things. I mean, you know, Andrew is, is no different than, you know, Ben uh, Roethlisberger, who will hang in there and hang in there and hang in there and make a play. I mean, the special ones think they can always make a play. And that, you know, you don't want to coach that out of Andrew. And going back and looking at the old tape, I think you see that a lot. Now, you know, one of the things that – and I think we still – you know, I wish I could tell you we weren't going to, but I think you're still going to see that. That's, that's, that's who he is. Uh, that's Andrew. He, he's going to always think he's going to make a play. But saying that, I think offensively, what Frank and Nick and our staff is doing, getting the ball out of his hands quicker, being able to make faster, quicker decisions in the passing game, I think that's really going to benefit him. And I tell you, it's, it's, you know, standing, I'll always stand behind on the defensive side first, because I, when I coached on defense, that was always my, you know, where I would stand. But then I could always look into the quarterback eyes to see, you know, what he's looking at. And he has got, it's fun to watch now. I mean, he is as fast mentally as I've been around uh, in terms of the quarterback position. Your owner, Jim Ursay, recently made the comment about backup quarterback Jacoby Brissett that the team wouldn't trade him and he doesn't believe they'd trade him for a first-round draft pick. When, if someone calls you up and offers that kind of a return, <laughs> what kind of conversation do you have with Jim Ursay? Well, I'll say this. We love Jacoby. Without question, we do. Um, that would have to be a discussion internally that we would have. I, I, I don't know, I mean, as proud as I am of Andrew, I, I don't know if people and look this is this is on this is on me. Um, this is this was one of my you know. Luckily, the football guys looked upon us last year and gave us the opportunity to acquire Jacoby Brissett and to be put in this situation that he was put in last year. You know, come in week you know right before the first game, right after the cut down, we make the trade. Um, and get him into in the end. Then to start two weeks later in, a, in an offense that's just completely different than what he had been in in New England, um, and the you know just the verbiage having to learn that, and for him to come in and keep us in games. I mean, because he did. He kept us in games. He gave us a chance to win uh, games in the fourth quarter. Just unfortunately, we didn't pull him out. Um, those would be some interesting discussions internally. But I know this: we think an awful lot of you going percent. 
And if he were available to be traded for draft picks, that's a way that you build your, your team going into the future. And I ask that because when Jack Muhort retired recently, one of my writers, Michael David Smith, pointed out that the Colts now have none of their draft picks from 2013 or 2014. As a practical matter, what kind of challenge does that create when you don't have what should be a nucleus of guys right smack dab in the middle of their prime? Yeah, I mean, it's it's created a challenge. I mean, it has. And, and but look, I mean, the biggest, I mean, the, the one thing I figured out, and Coach Alvarez just always tells us at Wisconsin, nobody, nobody cares about your problems. Nobody cares. All they care about is are you producing and, and getting down what you need to get done. I mean, that that's why the big emphasis upon draft picks for us is important and us being correct. I mean, are we going to hit on all of them? No, we're not. We're not. I mean, I, I, you, can, you can go down the, the list of the Hall of Fame GMs they missed. Um, but we've got to get an influx of talent defensively, some young players that we can build around going forward. The good news for us when we walked in the door was you had Costanzo, you had Ryan Kelly, um, you had Jack Doyle, you had Andrew, you know he was still going through the injury, and you had T.Y. Hilton. So we had some pieces offensively to at least build around. Defensively is where the work, is where the real work needed to be done. And that's why the emphasis on um, has become such a key. I mean, look, it's hard to build a team when the core of your team is not your own. Um, because there's no, I mean, look, I don't, I, I'm not against free agency. Um, if there becomes a point where I ever think that we're in a position culturally and with enough players internally that know the way we want to do things here in Indy um, can help absorb when you bring a guy in the building, that makes it a lot easier. You know, success or failure for a team in a given year is shaped so much based upon the perceived expectations going into the season. If a team like the Vikings doesn't make it to the playoffs, it's a complete failure. If the Browns would make it to the playoffs or even get close, it'd be time to build a statue of Hugh Jackson outside the stadium. What impression do you get in Indianapolis as to what the fans are expecting? I mean, this is a, a fan base that for years could expect every year a contender and got one. What do you think they expect in 2018? I think they expect to see a team that competes and shows growth and development. I mean, I, I'll tell you this, Mike, the one thing that I've been, you know, as I've gotten to know our fans, um, they are, they are smart. I mean, they get it. They get, as long as you're honest with them and you know, hey, this is, this is what we're working towards. This is what we're building. And that was one of the big things, you know, I've talked about with ownership is that, Hey, look, just, I mean, look, the truth is it's going to come out. Let's just be honest. This is where we're going. Um, we are going to be young. We're going to be young in some spots. I mean, we're not going to – look, every season is precious. And you never know. I mean, we're all starting out zero and zero. And, you know, we're going to compete. And we think we do um, have some pieces offensively um, to be pretty good. Um, defensively, we're going to be very young. And we'll see what they're – you know, how, how quickly they develop and grow. We're hoping quickly uh, to get it up and going. But I do believe that our fans know where we're at, um, and they want to see us compete. They want to see us continue to grow. You mentioned an important word there a couple of times, honesty. How, how much of the experience from last year, where there may have been some fans and media members who perceived a lack of honesty from the organization, has caused you to commit to the idea of always being transparent and straightforward with the fan base now? Yeah, I mean, but you know what, Mike? There was never a point last year 
I mean, every time, and, and I made a purpose of this, and, and our and our PR people did a really good job. Um, of, you know, when I got and talked, I told them where we were at, at every point uh, where we were at. And and look, the Andrew thing was tough. I mean, because we thought as an organization, and Andrew thought that we were on the right timeline to come back. And unfortunately, he had some setbacks that just didn't allow it to happen. He couldn't get over the hump. Um, but it, there wasn't at one point where I felt like we were being dishonest. And I know there were some spins out there like that. I didn't agree with them. Um, I felt like at every point we explained it the way, uh, in an honest fashion, to where they knew exactly what was going on every step of the way. And I don't believe that it was necessarily deliberate. I just think that sometimes that glass half full mentality, that exuberance, that confidence, that idea that everything's going to be fine may have fueled the assessments. When you look back in hindsight, do you think that any of that crept into it, that maybe rose-colored glasses were being implemented to make people think internally that it's really better than it is and there was a resistance to come to grips with the idea that this is a real problem? Well, uh, you know, when you have surgery, you don't know, you know, because every guy you just don't know. You don't, you know, you can, we can project. We can listen to what every, all our doctors are saying. Um, and here's the timeline. And so we're going off that saying, okay, this is, this is what a, this is what a normal surgery has. Um, this is where the rehab time should be. And this is where we should be at. So from rose colored glasses, I don't know. I mean, it, I thought for sure that, you know, it worked out. You always think the, the, the good side of things, of, hey, this is how it's going to work out. Um, unfortunately, it didn't. Um, and it didn't work out the way that we wanted to or the way Andrew wanted it to. Um, but for the long-term health of him uh, and for any of our players, the last thing we want to do is put a guy out there hurt. I mean, we went through the same thing with, with I mean, it kind of got overshadowed a bit. It was Clayton Gathers, who had the neck injury. And like I told Clayton, I said, hey, until you're healthy and you're cleared and in your mind you feel like you're ready to go, we're not we're not putting you out there. We're just I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that to a player. Let's put on the rose colored glasses and let's go back to young Chris Ballard first getting infected with the football virus. There was no Madden for us back in those days. Electric football <laughs> and football cards were the closest things we had. We saw maybe one or two games on TV a week. What was it that for you made you fall in love with the sport? Well, my, my grandfather was a, was a coach and, you know, and, and he was a huge influence in my life. You know, he played at he played at university of Texas, um, was a high school head coach in, in Monday, Texas, a little small town. And also in Beeville, Texas, another little small town in, in, uh, in South Texas. And then ended up landing, you know, I don't know, probably early fifties in Texas city where I grew up as the, as a junior high, junior high coach, he had four children. Decided that he wanted to, you know, influence in a different way in a junior and and working with a little younger kids. And plus, he had a full business on the side. And I always was with him at his practices. And me and, and then I would drive around with him in his van, an old van, no air conditioning, and we'd drive around and we'd clean pools. And I remember he only had AM AM radio, and there was a sports channel in town. And even as a young kid, seven, eight years old. Uh, we would listen to that sport radio channel and we would talk baseball. We would talk football all the time. How old were you when you realized you were going to be a pretty good athlete? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I could always run. And I came, you know, where I grew up is pretty competitive, Mike. I mean, Texas City, uh, Lamarck is a neighboring town, Galveston Ball, Laporte, uh, Clear Lake and Clear Creek, all those little, that little pocket in there was spitting out all kinds of athletes. Um, I think it was probably in the, you know, I was always a pretty good baseball player when I was young. Um, but then I quit playing, you know, when I got in the ninth grade. And then I was pretty good in football um, in the seventh and eighth grade. And it just, you know, I just ascended from there. Before I talk more about your football career, I grew up not far from Pittsburgh, and the football fans there had two things in common. They loved the Steelers, and they despised the Cowboys. So how does a kid in Texas end up becoming a Steelers fan? I don't know if it was the contrarian to me. Um, but And also, and think of this now, and you'll remember this, Mike. So go back to, that was the Love You Blue days. I mean, that was Bum Phillips. That was some great Houston Oiler teams that Pittsburgh was battling back and forth, and I had a whole family full of, <laughs> of Houston Oilers fans. And, I and they got screwed up. that one year. They got screwed oh, yeah. by the Remember refs that, that one the year. Yep. The Renfro catch where he got the feet down and they didn't call it dead instant replay back then. They would have – how we'd be talking about, uh, you know, the Steelers and the Oilers probably in a little bit different light. Um, but I would be dressed with my terrible towel, uh, my Lynn Swan jersey on, or Terry Bradshaw, and I would just, I could just tell the whole family just dreaded watching the game with me because I was, <laughs> I'd be pretty obnoxious <laughs> in my Steelers, Steelers gear. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's better to lose than to win in those circumstances because the target's on you <laughs> even bigger if your team wins. I mean, I, I, probably like you. I mean, I loved them. I mean, I, I could still, I mean, I still oh, like no, Chris, 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 it, I was a contrarian yeah. too. I, 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 45 years later, I wish I hadn't been, but I was just like you, the local team. Everybody likes a local team. That's all the reason not to like the local team. So yeah, I was not waving a terrible towel in those days, unfortunately. What, what, now who were you rooting for? Well, not the Cowboys. I wasn't completely stupid, although I still would have been happy. I grew up a Vikings <laughs> fan. Which made oh, Super Bowl nine really? miserable for me. Yeah, yeah, that was a bad decade. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, hey, look, I, those Pittsburgh teams, and I'm a I'm a huge Chuck Knoll fan. I mean, when this last book came out about Chuck Knoll, um, I mean, I just ate it up. I mean, I just always loved his demeanor, his emphasis on fundamentals, even at a young age. I mean, you could see when you played Pittsburgh, that you were in for a long, hard game. They weren't complicated with anything they did, but they did it. Remember, they were old trapping teams, so they would tra- they could run those traps. Um, and then defensively, they were very simple. Um, and, you know, as I visited with Tony, Coach Dungy, through the you know, over the last couple of years, you know, listening to him talk about, it goes back to Lovey, you know, when we were running in Chicago defensively, it's all very similar stuff, and it's very similar to what we're we're doing now with Matt Eberflus as our defensive coordinator. I mean, I'm big into the fundamental aspect of football. I mean, we're going to beat you know you want to beat people with because we know what we're doing, and we're going to play hard, and we're going to execute better than you will. You mentioned Coach Dungy, and I thought of him immediately when you started talking about Coach Knoll because here, more than 40 years later, Coach Dungy 
constantly mentions something he learned from Chuck Noll. I mean, to have a message stick with you for that long shows you how how meaningful it was and how many lives Chuck Noll impacted just with that very basic but very simple and wise approach to football. No, and, and look, I think if you looked, Mike, through the league, I mean, if you looked at Andy Reid, if you looked at Bill Belichick, all the great coaches, Mike Zimmer, who I think is doing a tremendous job in Minnesota, um, all the coaches out there that are successful, they all have a, a, a program based on fundamentals, effort, toughness, all the basic things that, that football, you know, the great teams in football do. They're all fundamentally sound. They all play really hard. You know, you mentioned playing football growing up. You ended up being a pretty good quarterback in high school. It got you an opportunity at Wisconsin. How much of the things you learned while playing football come into play now when you're looking for football players? Well, look, Barry Alvarez, that, so I go and, and, and I go there in 1988 and uh, we're not very good. And, you know, Don Morton was as good a man as you'll ever be around. Uh, just for whatever reason, couldn't get it going at Wisconsin. So he gets, you know, fired after my second year, and they bring in Barry Alvarez. And, you know, it's it's almost like talking about Chuck Noll. When I think of what Coach had to do, uh, we were as bad a team as there was in the country. And then to watch the rise in a three-year period and the things and the things that he emphasized about doing things right every day, everybody in the building – does things the right way and the type of people, type of players that you bring in the building that have a certain mindset, um, a gro- really a growth mindset that they're going to continue to grow and get better every day. And then from a toughness standpoint, the type of toughness that you need to win um, at any level of football, the mental tough, not only physical toughness, but the mental toughness, because it gets, it's hard. It's, it's not easy to, to play this game. And I think that's what really makes football special. And to learn all that from him, and then you can just, I mean, all you do is pay attention. I mean, you look at the emphasis that we've put on the offensive and defensive lines here and that we will continue to put an emphasis on it. That's, that's how Coach Alvarez built that program at Wisconsin. Uh, they were great teams up front, and, you know, they played fundamentally sound and they played hard. And I really believe that, you know, 25, 30 years later, you're still seeing the same thing at the University of Wisconsin, and I really believe that's why they're successful. You know, you mentioned the word toughness, and when I hear that word now, I have a different reaction to it than I had years ago. I feel like now, because of the sensitivity to health and safety and what we know about brain injuries, that there's almost an equivocation when people say toughness. There are limits to how tough you want to be while playing football, and I feel like the game may be changing in some respect where toughness isn't as embraced as it used to be or there are some sort of boundaries that come into play. Do you feel that the game at the NFL level is changing from the standpoint of how tough guys are allowed to be? No, I don't. I think, I think it's changing for the better from a, from a health standpoint. I think we know more which I think is a good thing. And I think the, the, the more we know about health and safety for our players um, and their long-term health, I think that is, and we need to do everything we can uh, to continue to develop new techniques of playing the game that make it safer. Um, but it's st- at the end of the day, it's still a hard sport, Mike. I mean, it is. It's, it's still a hard sport. It's a physically demanding sport. It's, 
and look, I I believe this. I believe football it's a it's it's it develops men. It really does. It develops young men who play the game. It's the one sport where you can't you you've got to rely on everybody on the field to do their job and do it together. That makes it really special. And the middle I think I think what we lose sight is we always say the word toughness, thinking from a physical standpoint, but the mental side of it is every bit as important. And I think I learned this in, you know, back, I mean, from my grandfather when he said, you know, when he explained to me what football, how important it was in his life in terms of just overcoming things because you're going to have, you're going to have rough days. You're going to have hard times, but you just keep moving forward. And sometimes I always wonder if, if people really realize what our players go through on a daily basis um, to get themselves ready for practice and ready to play um, each and every Sunday. I mean, it's a long grind. I mean, we go through OTAs, uh, you know, they get a little break in the summer, and then we start camp. And then from from the end of July all the way, you know, hopefully through the Super Bowl, that is a long run. And so you've mentally got – and you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days, but you've got to mentally be able to stay up and keep preparing yourself. How does this new helmet role impact the mental challenge when it comes to accepting the right techniques, implementing the right techniques in a situation where, Chris, and I don't know how much you've followed what I've written about this, I've come to the conclusion that it's almost unavoidable when you're making a form tackle to potentially hit a guy with your helmet accidentally. How do you teach guys with this new rule how to properly play football and not put themselves and the team at risk of 15-yard penalties? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, look, it's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, the league's come out with some great example videos for us to show. So the good news is with like, with certain like Seattle does, a, I think, I think Seattle does as good a job of anybody. Uh, they've been doing it since Pete walked in the door. And I think, I think coach Carroll did it at USC also um, where they taught it, you know, almost the rugby tackle to really take the head out of the game. Um, and Matt, coming from Dallas, they teach, and we did it in Chicago. They they teach a hamstring tackle, which is very similar to the to the rugby rugby tackle that takes the head out of the game. I think the biggest challenge. I mean, and, and look, there's still going to be some helmet to helmet contact. Um, it's going to happen. Um, if you try to teach it from a fundamental standpoint and emphasize it every day to take that helmet out of play. And I think what we've and I know I know the league is uh, making a big emphasis on this, especially at the youth football level, making sure that we're correctly teaching it um, from the ground up. That way, at every level, and as they advance, they're advancing with the right techniques. And I understand and I completely support the idea of not letting players use the helmet as a weapon. I think that's an improper tactic. It puts the tackler at even more risk than the person who's being tackled. But any incidental contact, I mean, I don't know how real-time, full speed, you can execute a form tackle 10 out of 10 times and not potentially have some helmet contact with the legs of the player you're trying to wrap up because he's not standing still. He's not a tackling dummy. He's moving. And I just, I'm having a hard time accepting the fact that it's just going to be happenstance, Chris, where one play it's a foul, another play it's not a foul just because the running back took a step to the left instead of a step to the right. Well, no, and you're and look, I mean... Those are going to. It's going to be interesting to see how this thing plays out, um, and especially, especially like 
the ones that bother me is when when you see the crown of the helmet. Um, anytime you see the crown of the helmet duck and then take a shot, though, to me, keeping your head up and trying to make trying to play with your head up at all times. Are there going to be some inadvertent? Absolutely. And are there going to be some calls that we probably disagree with? Absolutely. How much does it help you in the job you have now that you have a background in coaching? Um, well, I mean, look, there's been a lot of great GMs who didn't coach. Um, I, I think what it's, I think all through my career where it's really been beneficial to me is that I understood from a coaching standpoint, uh, you know, what they were going through on a daily basis. Um, I under, I could speak their language. Um, I understood schematically now, you know, am I an expert like I used to be? No, I mean, I haven't coached it you know, 19 years, but saying that I still keep up on the game and I still, and like, I like talking with our coaches uh, schematically because that helps me understand, you know, what exactly they want in a player. Cause I know exactly what they're asking them to do. And that's, and look, that's helped, that's helped form strong relationships with players. It's funny because you look at it and I always did, but I didn't ever think of it this way, but I was talking with coach the other night, Frank, and we were, you know, I, I said, look, I said, our assistants, they're because we rank and, and you know every night we visit about our players and and we visit about you know all right who's who's one who's two who's three um, who's doing well who's struggling and it's always funny because you know assistant coaches you know they're very protective of their position and sometimes they don't see the whole broad they just see their position um, and then the coordinator will just see his side of the ball. Um, and the head coach, like me and Fran, said, look, me and you are the ones that have to stay sober in the process of seeing, you know, the 360 view over the whole team. You know, one thing about life is it moves so fast and you wake up one day and you are where you are and maybe you didn't plan for it to be that way. When you decided to move from coaching into scouting, did you think, okay, my my path to having a bigger impact with the team lies in this direction? Did it just kind of happen? I mean, how much of a grand plan did you have when you migrated away from coaching into scouting? Zero. All right. That's a good story. So <laughs> um, it's – it's. Uh, 2001 was my first year in the league, um, and I was working at A&M Kingsville, where we had a lot of success, um, and just a great little, great university, had great players, great teams, and uh, I was fortunate to work for a man by the name of Ron Harms, um, who is now in the College Football Hall of Fame as you know one of the all-time winningest coaches in Division II history, and I loved living in South Texas, but. I mean, it can be a little difficult in Division Two. I mean, you're doing everything. So my seven, and I'd gotten to know Jerry Angelo. I got to know Rustin Webster was coming down as a as an area scout, um, and they were. I mean, we were putting players in Tampa. I mean, they were ta- they were finding them. They were working our school actively more than any other team. I think at one point we had seven players on the roster in Tampa, and Coach Dungey was there uh, during that time. Right when they were starting to really take off, they had a. George Diaz started for a guard, Carl Williams. They drafted Al Harris. They took Floyd Young. I mean, we had a plethora of players playing there. So I got to know Rustin and Jerry very well. And just happens that summer I'd called Jerry uh, just to say hello. And he said, hey, look, I got something going on. Um, you think you'd be interested in scouting? And I said, well, you know, maybe. 
And so he gets the job in Chicago, and, and him and Greg Gabriel, I had an interview with Greg, and they both, you know, decided to offer me the job. And at the time, I kind of thought it as a way to get into a higher level of coaching. But once I got into the scouting mode and once I got in to being on the road, looking for players, helping build a team, I just I fell in love with it. Give me one player that you found that was the diamond in the rough, the needle in the haystack, the guy no one else had found that ended up being a great player. Chris Harris um, was a safety out of Louisiana Monroe. Um, I'll never forget going in there, and he had a great game versus LSU his junior season. And I'd kind of marked it. I was in LSU scouting, and I saw the safety kept making plays against LSU, and I go, golly, who is this guy? And I kind of wrote his name down, and the next year I went into Monroe. He was a little dinged up, had a pretty good senior season, not a, not a great se- senior season, but I remember the D coordinator telling me, hey, Chris, this guy is the glue of our team and the smartest player we have. And I remember staying after practice and watching him break down the team and just how emotional and passionate he was about it. So we ended up taking him in the sixth round uh, in Chicago, and he ended up starting for us, uh, you know, the Super Bowl year. We traded him to Carolina uh, and then brought him, brought him back, uh, back 2010 and went to the NFC Championship game. He, I, there's times when I don't think Chris Harris gets enough credit was he a special player? No, but he was a really good player on a great defense, and he was almost a glue piece for. He was really a glue piece piece for us um, because the players loved him. Uh, he was brilliant, smart, and he's one of the prouder guys I've scouted. You know, over my career. What is it that makes a guy a glue piece in your perspective? You know, you know your your best leaders don't. It's great if they're your best players. But they don't. It doesn't necessarily have to work that way. Um, to me, it's the guy that shows up and he works every day. He produces in the role you're asking him to produce for, um, and he's passionate about it. And players will gravitate to the guys that work. That, that like the locker room knows, Mike. They know the locker room. These players, they're not. You know, they get it, and they know uh, the guys in the room that can really help them win. And the ones that are putting in the time, um, who won't tolerate anything that gets in the anything that gets in the way of winning, and those are the attributes that that players respect. The GM job entails a lot of things. Even now in training camp, you have to constantly be looking for other players ready to go, making moves, looking at the roster. G- give me an aspect of the job that you now have that you don't like. Well, look, I'm fortunate to do it. I, I mean, I could have to go get a real job. Um, that would that would be tough. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, you know, the hardest part of the job, Mike, is is controlling because you can't control it. But managing is a better word. Managing sometimes the false narratives that happen outside. There's so there's such a there's such a, a public eye. You know, everybody's got an opinion. Um, right or wrong, and then when something is written or said, it becomes the gospel. To me, that's that's the part of the job I don't like. Um, and then having to get up and talk to the media and then explain things that you know aren't always spun in the right direction. That's that's the only part. The rest of it, I love. I love. There's nothing. You, what you... There's nothing about it I don't like in terms of that. 
I'm intrigued by this. When you see a narrative emerging either locally or nationally from someone on the outside, how how aggressive are you? How proactive are you in trying to to beat it back? Or do you just let it play itself out? I mean, how much strategy is involved when one of these stories comes up by way of what are we going to do to get our version of reality out there? Well, I've got really thick skin. That's been something God blessed me with when I was a kid. I've never let anything, I don't let things bother me because um, I know, I know it's not personal. You know, I get that. Um, and like I, and I had this discussion with our local media all the time. I said, look, I'm going to, you're going to, I'm going to, to get great access to us. I said, all I ever ask is just to be fair. If we screw it up, you can kill us. I said, I get it. I said, I get that. I said, but all I'm asking is just be fair. Be honest in your assessment of what you're seeing and what's going on. And and when we mess it up, uh, you can, we deserve the criticism. Like I get, I get that part of it. Um, I don't read much, to be quite honest with you. I read about the league because I want to know what's going on in other cities. But about us, I kind of let Matt handle that. And then if there's something that comes up, Matt will come to me, um, and we'll talk it through. Um, I I don't aggressively pursue at all. If something is written that I don't agree with, I don't. I just, if I have to get up and speak at a press conference, sometimes I'll address it. I think it's important that, we need to make sure we get the right story out in the in the in the in the our version of it out, but it's not something that we aggressively do. You mentioned that you fell in love with the scouting aspect of the job, traveling, finding players. How do you strike that balance as a GM between how much time you actually go out on the road and how much time you are essentially captaining the ship? It's hard. Um, it's really hard. I'm not gonna lie to you, Mike. There's there's. I mean, I like I loved the. I mean, I loved going on the road. I loved going into a school and leaving that school after a day, two days, how many days it took me. I mean, I never, I never worried about my schedule. All I worried about was finding players, and I always felt really there's not a better feeling in the world than going into the school and going, man, I got that guy nailed. I know everything about. I know his character. Um, so balancing that with a GM, I can't do it like I used to. I mean, and I've. I'm fortunate that I have a great group of scouts here um, that I trust to go do their job. I'll still get out, you know, Friday, Saturdays to go see games. I'll go to some local. I'm fortunate here in Indy, you know, because Louisville's two hours away. Cincinnati's close. Notre Dame's close. North Chicago's close. Uh, we got Purdue and Indiana. So I can see a good, you know, here in the Midwest, a lot of Midwestern teams. And then when we play other places, I can make sure I can get a live look on people. Um, and then during our off week, I get away. Um, but, you know, internally, you know, being here Monday through Wednesday, Monday through Thursday is it, to me, it's important. Yeah. It's important for our teams, for, for our coaches, uh, to know that they have somebody that's here working and, and supporting him. And then I trust that my staff is doing everything possible to find the players that, you know, that, that fit our, fit our criteria. The NFL goes free agency and then the draft. The NBA goes draft, then free agency. Do you ever think of how different it would be and maybe how better it would be if it was flipped around for the NFL and you did the draft before you went out there and tried to re-sign your own guys or sign new veterans? You know, to be honest, I haven't thought about it. It's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. Um, I, I don't know from a hmm, – that, that's interesting. I've never thought about it, Mike, to be quite honest with you. I always wondered from a player perspective if going after the draft, if the price wouldn't go up because now 
Now there's significant, you know, there's significant need on the team side. Um, and then the bidding wars are really going to, I mean, we already have a bidding war, you know, when it starts in March, but you know, how much more of a bidding war will we have if it came after the draft? How hard is it to not jump in right away and overspend like so many teams? Every year it's inevitable somebody does it, and I think the smart teams tap the brakes and wait for the money to flow and the market to settle. And every year it seems like everyone's aware of that dynamic, but there's always somebody who gives into it. You know, I, we're paying players for what they're going to do in the future, not for what they did in the past. And I've always kept a, you know, when I was in Kansas City, we did a pretty good job with it. Um, and I've just brought kind of piggybacked on the philosophy here of, you know, trying to stay sober during that time and making sure that we're getting the, the right value for the player. Because, I mean, look, everybody gets excited. I think you say it best. You know, everybody gets excited in March. Well, eventually you might give a guy a big amount of money and then he's got to play football in September. And that's when, that's when the real criticism starts. So you might have a 24-hour period or 48-hour period where everybody feels great about what you just did, but then you got to actually line up and play football and win games. And to me, you don't, you don't win games in March. You, just, you don't. You win games in November, December, and January. So one thing I really love about the league is that they give you chances to fix your team at the cutdown. They give you chances to fix your team uh, with the claim order. Um, those are aspects. There's always players out there. You just got to dig. You got to you got to turn over every rock and find them. And are you gonna are you gonna unearth a superstar in August and September? Maybe not. But you can sure unearth a win with player that you can plug in and help you win games. Just like the Jacoby Brissett trade from a year ago, something that. Ideally, you'd have had him earlier, but you brought him in and it worked out and he was able to play. And when that trade possibility arises, I'm curious about how just a trade, that seed even gets planted. Do you spend time strategizing on trades you could possibly make? Do you wait for someone else to make the first move? I mean, there's leverage involved. And if you're too aggressive, they're going to ask for too much. How do you play? Maybe you're going to, I don't want you to reveal any, any trade secrets here, but from your perspective, I mean, how do you process the the possibility of maybe doing a trade? Well, we've graded every player in the league and we, we spend, especially when, you know, you're starting a new cycle like we are now, um, we have that whole first week of preseason games, which so our scouts and I'm, you know, I'm assigned. I'll take a team or two and help out so we don't get overloaded. But we grade every player in the league, and we know where our weak spots are, where we need to get better. And you can just look at teams' rosters and say, okay, here's where they're really strong. Here are guys that possibly could be targets if they get released or if they get offered up in a trade. And you know, we're in constant, you know, between me, um, Ed Dodds, uh, Rex Hogan, Kevin Rogers, all of our pro staff, they are constantly talking to every team in the league, just kind of gauging, you know, what's out there, who might be available. And then eventually, you know, when you can get two sides to come together to agree on compensation, it works out. How hard is it, though, to get to that that point of comfort and trust with another team? Because I'm sure reputation, relationships, a lot of things go into it, and sometimes maybe you get burned. Sometimes maybe someone leaks that you're having the conversation that then creates separate yeah. problems for you. How hard is it to have the right comfort level? No, it's look, and you nailed it. I mean, that's it's difficult. It's not easy um, because the second you 
bring up another player's name and then it gets leaked and then you're going to call from the agent and they're upset that you, you know, floated the player around to be traded. Is my guy going to be there? I mean, no, it's, it's, it's hard. You have to build up trust with people. I mean, and that just takes time and your word. I mean, I, that's one of the things that I really believe in. Like, like I'm not, uh, I just, the way I was, the way I tick, I'm not in the business of, of trying to get over on somebody. Uh, you hope both sides win the trade. You hope that it works. It doesn't always work that way, um, but you you hope that it works out to where both sides are happy with the trade. And, you know, public perception is what it is, but internally you don't want another team knowing that every time they deal with you, you're trying to get over on them. That Those are, those are very difficult teams to deal with. Got a couple quick questions for you from the listening audience. I always put out the invitation for folks to chime in. And the first question is a very important one. It comes from Laura. Will Andrew Luck be suspended for that hideous mustache? <laughs> I love the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if he wins, I have a feeling you'll have one that looks just like it. Absolutely. It'll be all gray. <laughs> Oh, hey, I, I know I know that routine very well. I'm, I'm managing to hang on to some dark hair up top, but uh, if I go more than a couple of days, it's just shiny gray Santa Claus beard, so no mustache for me either. Daryl Ingram wants to know whether or not the Colts have any interest in receivers like Jeremy Macklin or Des Bryant. Um, good players, without question. Um, right now, internally, we're just going to continue to work with this young group we have um, and continue to go down this preseason path, and if we get to a point uh, that we think we need to reach out, uh, those will be a couple guys that would be on the list. How hard is it, any receiver, whether it's Macklin, Des Bryant, anyone else, a guy who doesn't know the offense, doesn't know the players, doesn't know the coaching staff, doesn't know the city, doesn't know where he's going to live, how hard is it to plug a guy like that in the closer and closer you get to the games that count? It's really hard. I mean, that is, that's why our sport so much, you know, in baseball, they can move and they can, you can slot a guy and play third base. Um, and playing third base is no different if you're playing for the Houston Astros, the Cubs, the Braves, doesn't matter. It's still third base. Um, they might have little shifts, but at the end of the day, it's still third base. With In football, it, it, the, 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 the verbiage is different in the offense. Um, the, the way that they want you to actually run the, do what you have to do to be successful as a player might be a little bit different. And then from a timing and chemistry standpoint, so it's it's very difficult. I mean, that's why I brought up the Brissett. You know, for him to be able to do what he did last year in very difficult circumstances, um, it's tough. And not getting the OTA reps, not getting all the training camp reps, it's hard to just plug a player in in the NFL. I think that I think that's why you don't see a lot of trades in our league um, because everybody knows the difficulty of it. That leads to the last question from the audience. Tyler Fornis wants to know when evaluating talent, how much does a player's skill set fit into the systems you run? How much does that fit factor into whether you want them? And, you know, and, and that gets back to the debate of, do you just want good football players? Do you want guys who can run your offense and your defense? How much do you look at that? Well, the fits everything. So, and not just from a, not just from a skill set standpoint, but from a character standpoint, I mean, we have a criteria that we have that, other teams might take the player, but he won't be on our board because he doesn't fit our criteria. We have a very strict uh, criteria, especially on defense, about what we want and what we want to play with. Um, and so it, it is important. The fit, the fit for us, 
might not be the fit for somebody else. I mean, look, we're in the we're in the and like I tell our scouts when they go on the road, look, we're we're in the business of eliminating the guys that don't fit, and then we're going to figure out the guys that who we do say fit and get them correctly placed on the board. Why is there more of an emphasis on defensive than offensive players when it comes to that kind of fit? Well, the fit offensively is, is especially, well, defensively, because we're, we're going to put such an emphasis on athleticism and speed. Um, not that we don't put the same emphasis, but there's certain players that won't fit us defensively at inside backer um, on, the, on the defensive line uh, that other teams would play with that, for us, they just, they just won't fit us. Offensively, we do have a criteria. Um, without question, especially especially up front. I mean, you can see we're getting bigger up front with the drafting of Nelson and, and Braden Smith. Um, so there are criteria, but defensively, it is a very specific uh, roles that these guys play on defense. Well, Chris, I've kept you long enough. I'll tell you what, you got a lot going on, and I really appreciate you giving us nearly a full hour here. I th- I've learned a lot, and I've enjoyed it, and hopefully we can do it again at some point down the, yeah. the road. And uh, I, I wish you all the best to the, the Texas kid who was a Steelers fan. Maybe you're going to have some Colts <laughs> fans popping up in, uh, in a bunch of states other than, than Indiana coming soon. Well, I sure appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right, brother. Bye-bye. All right. There he is, Chris Ballard. And you know what? I got a few more codes before we wrap this up, if I can only find them. Three more codes. I was going to pepper them in, but I didn't want to bog down the interview by reciting these codes. So, so I have, here it is, 7KB2, CTNP, GFH9, that's for PS4, and two Xbox codes for a free copy of Madden 19, 4K DX4, KY6T7, M4JTX, TMD99, TPH9Z. Editorial note, the Xbox codes are a pain in the ass. Here's one more. N, no, wait a minute, let me do that again. It's important to say the right number and letter. I've done it right so far. One more. 9, MK67, H36W9, MVCTD, GQJ76, VRHGZ. And on that impactful note, free Madden games for everybody out there. Play Madden like Chris Ballard doesn't. And uh, enjoy your day. And we'll be back with another PFTPM podcast. Old school edition on Tuesday. Stream of consciousness. Just me for an hour talking about whatever I feel like talking about, answering your questions. But thanks again to Chris Ballard for giving us nearly a full hour. It was a great conversation. I really did learn a lot. And uh, with that said, the bar is still fairly low when it comes to me learning new things. Thanks for your time. We'll talk to you again on Tuesday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.